Hello and welcome to the Comic Literate Podcast, the podcast where we do deep dives into comic books, mangas, penny dreadfuls, just lots of stuff really. Um, I'm your host Jamie and with me today is my studious host Ryan. Yeah, you forgot graphic novels? Yeah, I fucked it up. (laughs) (laughs) I never get that one right when I do it. To be fair, you took on right at the last second. I was like, all right. Yeah, I've got her in in front of me, but you want to take a crack at it? I just, yeah, every once in a while I make the decision that I just want to intro us, and today was one of those days. I just felt high energy today. Okay, but I should remember that to do the outro in response at the end as well. Yeah, absolutely. Because I haven't done the outro yet, so I'll give it a crack and see what it comes out as. Yeah. Did you like? Did you like my? Studious was it? A studious. A, yeah. A studious. Yeah, I think I think I mispronounced. It. I think it is just studious. I mean, I'm of the two of us, if I don't know it, and if you don't know it, I'm I'm sure she's not going to know it. Well, you're the studious one. You should know it. Yeah, but my vocabulary, here's how my vocabulary works. And anyone who's listened to more than two episodes will know this. (laughs) My vocabulary is bigger than you would think, but I have a thing where my brain will make a sentence to incorporate vocabulary Mm. that I don't have. So I'll begin the sentence and then I'll get to the point and realize... I kind of know the word, but I don't <laughs> remember it in this moment. And it's even more annoying because I know I know the word, yeah. but I don't have that information. It's like, you know, the, the brain filing cabinet thing. Yeah. It's like looking through the files, like, come on, it was here a second ago. Like, where was it? <laughs> and I just spend ages, as listeners will have heard, me going, uh, 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 and then come up with a dumb <laughs> word of the word. <laughs> I try, I try not to let the adhd monster take over and just jump in and save you because that's really rude and i get told off for it but sometimes when i watch somebody like scrabbling for a word and it's just on the tip of my tongue i can't help myself see that's interesting because i don't know if you've noticed but i do that to people all the time but i give it like enough time where yeah, they're yeah. like waiting for it and then i'll just suggest like and then they'll go yeah yeah and then continue at a certain point i think it's a kindness <laughs> well who who's told you off? i mean you don't have to name names but have people actually told you off for being like i was gonna get the word and then you ruined it well no 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 nobody's yeah I, I misspoke nobody's ever actually told me off for it but i've heard that it's perceived as being rude right i mean like i said if someone's struggling with the sentence and by the way feel free to do it to me like get save us some time yeah absolutely i'm well struggling with we're, we're running out of tape here <laughs> i mean if this was back in the day where we had to like make physical tape yeah, and yeah. It'd be and cut like, it together we're burning reels here <laughs> I, think, I always hear that through like actors interviews where they're like back in the day yeah. when it was like hard hard tape or whatever physical you know reels and when a director's like no no i'll give you another take do what you want with this when they're like oh my god he's given precious <laughs> tape like, he must really believe in yeah me. he must really trust me all right i mean uh, the that the full extent being like kubrick on the other end mm. it's like do this take 150 times like do we have enough real like i've been i brought it especially yeah absolutely turn yeah, that he, light switch on a hundred times he did not give a fuck did he no i mean he's to kubrick arguably you could say Kind of like the Alan Moore of the film world. (laughs) (laughs) There are some parallels. Stanley Kubrick, well known for being a fucking wizard. I mean, (laughs) he weren't normal. Uh, That that wasn't the comparison you were drawing, was it? No, no, I mean, not that specific one. (laughs) I tell you what, what, I think Alan Moore was probably a lot nicer than Kubrick. I I think that's an easy one to determine. So for the listeners, what you obviously, you know, it's listed right there. We are real life friends. And Ryan has recently taken, very recently, in fact, and I want to raise it on the podcast. Ryan has recently taken to communicating with me entirely in Alan, Alan Moore gifts. 
Oh well, there's a limited number, so that might have stopped already. <laughs> He's not. Have you run? Is the well run dry? I'm saying it might run dry extremely soon. I mean, you're way. learning video video editing, so you could just learn how to make your own Alan Moore gifs. I 100 could. Is genuinely whether I mean, with all this going on, it's whether the 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 cost to rewards like benefits yeah any anybody who's savvy who listens to the podcast if you'd like to produce some alan moore gifts send them to us and maybe mm. we'll talk about them on the podcast uh, put it this way i suspect that the gifts that are already there are already all the moments <laughs> that he was captured doing large physical actions yeah that were just him like like if you what, were casting spells well like if you wanted i mean I, he's the kind of person i reckon who just says them under his breath yeah and then like just <laughs> slips it in like a you know he's not like a doctor strange like the ones of watum or whatever like <laughs> I think he's just like mumble something and you yeah. go, what? It's like nothing. And then you find out like your pockets are full of sand or something. Mm. And you're like, bloody. Your oh, pockets I- are full. That's some low level magic that he's doing. Yeah. Because he's just a quick mumble under his beard. <laughs> under his beard? Yeah. <laughs> I assume yeah. that's how it works. I'm, can I steal that for whatever I write next? I really want to have a character mumble something under their beard. An old curmudgeon wizard. Yeah. Who, yeah. who mumbles something under his beard and suddenly pockets full of sand i'm gonna write a short story about a miserable writer (laughs) who doesn't people are gonna be like is that you oh that's a bit harsh isn't it no but that's like people like you make a bearded character and you are self our bearded man absolutely are you writing yourself here (laughs) it's not quite like when someone writes like a historical piece and there's like evil characters or whatever yeah go like oh is that you the evil one but it's like if you if some one (laughs) character looks like you it's like is that you is that meant to be you that beard's awfully ginger and you go, no, no, have you heard of Alan Moore? And they go... <laughs> <laughs> like over a pint. No, 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 it's, it's Alan Moore, right? Yeah. I promise. And 50-50 be like, no, or, oh, did he do that V for Vendetta or something? <laughs> be like, uh, yeah, kind of, yeah. You did Superman, right? And you're like, well, no, only once in the 1980s. And it was for a Christmas special. <laughs> no, if you've got an hour, I can show you an episode of a podcast. <laughs> that really gets into it. <laughs> Did you know Superman's dad was a Nazi? <laughs> I tell you what, in hindsight, in, if we had done instead of um, t- the comic book titles yeah. as, the, as the episode titles, Sup- that Superman's, was a, dad, is Superman's a dad is a Nazi? Question mark? You can still change those. They're fluid. Yeah, oh, I mean, going forward. I mean, could- if we ever make a t-shirt. Superman's dad dad is a Nazi Nazi. in a big speech bubble. We we might get sued. (laughs) Space Nazi. Space Nazi. Yeah, Superman's dad is a space Nazi. Would we get sued by the DC people or the Nazis? There's still Nazis floating about. They're yeah, oh, hundred percent. I think what I was thinking about is they might still be sour about the Superman punching Hitler cover (laughs) art from the war. Is that a thing? Oh yeah, like if there any like like. The big, two big ones, I think, were Superman and Captain America, obviously. Both punched. Both punching, um, both punching Hitler. There was definitely Superman versus the Klan at one point. Is this the first time we've mentioned Hitler on the podcast? Yeah, I suppose technically, because we only talked about Nazis on the, the Alan Moore Superman <laughs> one. So what are we talking about today, Ryan? Because I don't think uh, it is the Nazis. Only us would be talking about, and if the listeners see the title, they know, um, only us would talk about the intention to talk about one comic book creator but then talk about alan moore for 10 minutes first like <laughs> that's the staple of the podcast at this point point. and we are talking about a legend today aren't we yes uh, unfortunately recently passed 
But on the plus side, we get to explore and celebrate his lifelong work, which is John Romita Senior. Yeah, and I think, and I think, I think it, we we actually we we sat we sat and had a conversation about this, didn't we? And we decided that he'd had such a lasting legacy on the way that Marvel comics and comics in general looked and felt that it would have warranted an episode talking about his work regardless but this seemed like a really good moment to do that because it's a celebration of his massive contribution to comic books and superheroes of course um and what's interesting as well is as someone who consider themselves a comic book fan like mm. myself it's one of those situations i think a lot of people in a similar boat where unless you're like proper in the weeds for a long time in this kind of medium you don't know about a john romita senior or people of his level yeah until unfortunately you get to this point and then suddenly people are talking about all the work he does it did and then you you look and you go oh shit he's like crafted my entire like favorite characters and and to be clear he was right there with stan lee at the inception of marvel comics drawing all of this classic artwork he has been so important in the creation of so much of what you well I say you guys, but people who are into Marvel Marvel mm. superhero comics, definitely, you definitely will have either seen a piece of art by John Romita or a piece of art that was inspired by John Romita. I mean, what summed up best, I think, a, a few articles were using this phrase, which I think does sum up perfectly. He his work basically became the blueprint for the marvel house style yeah. for decades l later and he was the art editor for marvel for a long time in the 1970s mm. wasn't he and that's probably why um, yeah. but and also just the fact of his most well-known work would have been on spider-man from mid-60s onwards yeah and the thing that mainly sold it for his style becoming so popular within this company was that was the best-selling comic Mm. at the time so well, he made it the best-selling comic that's the thing his well, artwork was part of the reason that it became such a huge seller i would say technically i think it's it's part of the reason it continued to be a bestseller and the only yeah, right okay. the only reason i know that at all is in my research um how he took over spider-man from steve ditko yeah and he referenced when asked about it later he said he was surprised that ditko walked away mm, from right. the most successful comic at the time and also why he felt so uh one of those moments why he felt so apprehensive yeah i thought you're gonna give me that one no <laughs> i'm just gonna i'm gonna i'm just gonna yeah. leave you ro leave you rolling for it it's what i mean i managed to get it this time luckily <laughs> it's why he felt so apprehensive about filling large shoes of ditko um and it was so weird because i watched a couple of interviews with him and ditko came up a lot and he really felt as though he was in Didco's shadow. And actually, I mean, both of them did an incredible job with Spider-Man. And I read a sample of comics from both eras uh, prepping for this episode, but his were my favorite. Mm. Um, I'm going to go right out and say it. His Spider-Man issues that I read, there's two, two, one, two, two issues. <laughs> <laughs> there are two issues in particular yep. um, of his that I read, which I will go into in a bit more detail later that I think are probably some of my favourite superhero artwork I've ever seen. Mm. And his covers especially are the type of ones that, even if you're not reading comics or that much into it, you've almost certainly seen those covers that get blown up into, yeah. into artwork, that people hang on walls and stuff. Yeah. Um, and stuff like that is uh, it, like iconic for the characters, mm. especially. 
he also, like we're talking about Spider-Man a lot, but he also did a lot of work on other titles. Uh, he also created a lot of characters. Or cre- yeah. And when we use there's the word... one that I really want to talk about. Yeah, there's one... There's When it comes to the word creation, I think that gets lost in a bit with comics as opposed to other mediums where yeah. normally it is a co-creation. Mm. And sometimes you do have a lot of... Uh, back and forth over who sh- who sh- can claim the title of creator but ultimately he at the very least co-created a lot of iconic characters mm. and then the argument becomes if it's an iconic look is that more important than the writing because you comics medium you remember the look of characters well there's there's one in particular that um, so we're, we're, we've just been reading and we're going to be talking about really soon a Spider-Man comic that was actually drawn by John Romita's son and one of the one of the the villain that he makes use of in that run is one that his dad created. Um, what's his name? You know who I mean? The big fella. Uh, Rhino. No, the other one. Tombstone. The big bloke. The the big gangster bloke. Tombstone. Yeah, Tombstone. Yeah, he, he was the gangster. Yeah. yeah, he created Tombstone, I believe. So there was a lot of characters that, again, he is listed as creator, and it's obviously in contention about yeah creation, like writer versus artist. And I do think the the look of the character is a huge part um, before, you know, remembering decades later. Like, I think you remember the visual, visual sticks with you a bit more than the story sometimes. I think we can look to the machinations of corporate law to work out who the creator is. If you are quoting a comic book hero, um, that's one thing. But if you are using an image of a comic book hero, that is something else entirely. That's fair. And so I think the person who creates the way that a comic book hero looks, I would call them the creator. Yeah, that's they, fair. They created this iconic visual. And I, and I know it's murky water, and this is just my perspective, and by no means is this subjective. Um, sorry, by no means is this objective true. Yes. Not subjective, it's very subjective. Is that... Yeah, when we talk about him as having created these characters, I think that's really reasonable because mm. he created the way they looked. I mean, even down to, oh, who was the, one of the first black Marvel heroes? Luke Cage. He he created Luke Cage's first iconic costuming. Yes, and which was weird uh, in... Uh, as it aged, it's definitely weird because yeah. he has like a chain belt uh, and a something like a tiara. Yeah. It's it's kind of odd. Although it was great in the Luke Cage Netflix show, yeah, they would do like a circumstances put them back in the old costume. Yeah. And in this case, Luke Cage had just escaped from prison and he just grabbed a bunch of shit, like like clo- like clothes on a line to like wear on, on the run. But he also had this like scientific experimental headgear. <laughs> so with the clothes and the thing, it was, uh, and he, I think he catches himself in a mirror and he's like, I look like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> but again, on paper. And in you know in the in the panels that costume looks pretty cool. Mm. And, and also that look was used for a great story run, where Luke Cage tracks down Doctor Doom, who yeah. has always been like one of the biggest villains yeah, of the yeah. Marvel universe, because Doctor Doom owns and owns owes him something like eighty dollars or something. <laughs> and, uh, the Fantastic Four are like, oh, how can we crack his like plans again for world domination? Looks like you owe me money. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and at one point, I do Doom is like, "Did you really come all this way for your money?" And Cage's like, "You owe me." Yeah. <laughs> that's so good. I mean, that's very Luke Cage, isn't it? Yeah, it's great because I said he can achieve as much as the Marvel heroes, but he is still like heroes for higher street level. So yeah, it's absolutely. like in perspective of. 
Um, I've got the list. Do you want to briefly run through them? Just see if any pop out to you at all. As uh... yeah, I mean, there's. I suppose there's one specifically that I really want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe leave her off. Yes, and then yeah, we'll yeah. talk about her later. Yeah, of course. Um, so in alphabetical because that's how Wikipedia does it. Uh, I've got Brother Voodoo, who is kind of a side character, Doctor Strange esque uh, character. Bullseye, who became a very daredevil um, yeah i'm familiar uh enemy which makes sense because he actually starred on daredevil just before spider-man yeah uh luke cage as you said uh Femazons, i don't recognize firestar who i may have recognized um you've got essentially the kingpin and his family kingpin that's the one i was trying to get at he was not in that comic we read fuck's sake <laughs> they look they look similar though don't they well uh kingpin is for lack of a better term very rotund and Tombstone yes. was like a thin, muscular man. Do you they remember, similar roles. Do you remember I once sent you a photograph of a bloke I saw in the pub with, <laughs> with the um, caption Kingpin and you looked at it and you were like, fucking hell, Jamie. <laughs> like, Unfortunately, there are some people who look like the Kingpin. Unfortunately for them. <laughs> the thing about the Kingpin is like he looks that way. But what I love about like a running character theme that spreads across all writers and volumes mm. and titles and eras the kingpin is looks very fat, and as soon as anything physical happens, you realize there's like an inch under there is just all muscle. Yeah, well, he's he... like an athlete, but because he wears so much fat, people are like, oh yeah, he's just a big guy. Always good. And then he like fucking like slams people on the floor and like sprints after them and stuff. So he's like Action Bronson. Yeah, exactly. That's a, a good comparison for sure. Like I remember watching a there was a he did the, he did there was a fuck that's delicious episode for anyone who don't doesn't know who Action Bronson is look up action bronson he's a hip-hop artist from queens in new york who is also a great chef and a massive foodie and has a youtube food channel called fuck that's delicious he used to be like well over 300 pounds but he could do elevated push-ups mm. at that weight he was an absolute unit yeah uh, kingpin is the absolute unit well, he in, in is, my, isn't he? the original uh, we've got a character called Gibbon, who I don't know. Uh, Gladiator, who I don't. Apparently, is related to Melvin Potter. I don't. I, that might be one of his romance things yeah. potentially. Um, Hammerhead, well-known Spider-Man villain. He yeah. was he was in the the one we're going to do the episode on. I think the sense that I really got is that there were two kind of sets of characters that he is most famous for having created. There's a handful of Spider-Man villains, mm. and then there are Spider-Man's love interests. Well, one particular, which one we'll particular. get into. Um, I'll skip through just because there's a lot that I think are... Not that some, interesting. Well, just uh, ones that I don't recognize, so I can't even do them justice necessarily. Hobgoblin, big yeah, Spider-Man, uh, Spider-Man villain. villain. Um, Man Mountain Marco, who I think is someone else. Um, or he's just, a, he's just a big muscled guy, actually. Mm. Um, we've got uh, Mars Marauder, who I actually just read in a comic today. Yeah. I was reading um, The Defenders. And it was written by Al Ewing. Now, Defenders is a term, it's like a, a, a group name that literally doesn't mean anything. Like, yeah. a, almost anyone can be in it, essentially. Yeah. But I saw Al Ewing, and I was like, well, I'll give that a go. It's probably the worst Al Ewing one I've read. Do I know Al Ewing? Uh, Immortal Hulk. So yeah, we, this well, one we're going to be doing, yes. You talked to me about him a lot. But the problem was this issue, I gave it a read, and the first issue, they just do so too much in one issue. That I'm like, I, too much has happened, and I, I don't care. <laughs> I, he didn't get Is the, it all comic book shenanigans as well? Yeah, yeah, kind of. I, I, it's, it's a weird one. It's, uh, I, I'm realizing now that writers, you do have the hits and misses, and there's yeah. a lot of external, behind-the-scenes things. We'll just never know why yeah, that's absolutely. happened. Yeah, um, absolutely. There is a uh, big one, The Punisher. 
Yeah. Now, the Punisher specifically, I heard what happened there was the whoever the writer was who came up with the original character basically came to John Romita, said, here's this idea for a character. We're going to introduce him in Spider-Man, which was first appearance, I'm yeah. almost certain. I uh, said, here's the general design, but, you know, do you know, make it look good or, you know, change it however you want. And the original design, uh, the Punisher, Frank Castle, he just had like a skull and crossbones, like a pirate flag almost, like just yeah. a, on his chest about the size of the Batman symbol. Right. So John Romita took it and made the skull massive on his chest and he made the teeth of the skull, this like iconic now, the teeth of the skull were gun magazines on his, che- on his uh, waist. Yeah, so the standard, the way the, the Punisher still mm. looks. But that was such a big difference from like, there's so many comic book characters that they've tried to translate the look because the original 60s were quite camp, for lack of a better term, like quite like, like overly audacious and like when you're trying to make them gritty in the real, t- um, you know, later on, they've been harder to translate or they've gone like, They've kept them as like throwbacks to mm. the original, but they just look so out of place in one day. The Punisher is one I think that that's lasted even longer because he nailed it in a more gritty way yeah. from the start. So uh, just a, a huge credit to like his what he knew would work for the character. Uh, we've got Rhino, another huge Spider-Man character, although his design of the Rhino is definitely not aged well in the sense that it's just a guy in a costume with the head. <laughs> i tell you what I noticed. A lot of Ramita's work, if anyone has seen the 60s uh, Spider-Man cartoon, mm. a lot of that I think is Ramita. Is like, it was based on the comics he was doing at the time. Mm. So if you've seen the Rhino, there's the meme of the four villains. And it's like uh, me and the boys. And it's like Rhino, Electro, Vulture, and Goblin or something. Right. But the Rhino there is literally just a guy in a Rhino suit. Like his head is just popping out of like a, a rhino suit yeah that kept going for a while but nowadays he's more like technological suit kind of look which mm. looks a bit better i but mean I, th- I think it's fair to say that he has been instrumental in making a lot of really interesting character designs hasn't he yeah of course um more normal i think the normal human characters and we'll get to the big one in a bit but the more human characters kind of fall a bit to my wayside in terms of iconic looks because like costumes obviously are a bit more memorable yeah. we've got like Robbie and Randy Robertson, like staple Spider-Man characters. Um, Shocker, great look um, for a Spider-Man villain, in my opinion, mainly because it always looks like his costume was made out of like, like padded pillow casing, kind of like soft yeah. cotton look. But that fed into the character because he had these Shocker gauntlets. So what it later became, or maybe even at the time, was that that was insulating him from the shocking. Okay. So he looked kind of weird, like a villain normally does, but because of this specific function, which again, like the Punisher thing, it kind of fed into that. Uh, George Stacy. This is a long list. Oh, we're, we're, we're nearly there. I'm, so I'm at the point where I'm not listening to you anymore and I'm recording this podcast with you. All right. We've just got... <laughs> That's a long, that is a long list that we've taken from Wikipedia there. All right. We've just got two more significant ones. You're not stopping. <laughs> yeah, of course not. Of course not. <laughs> Commitment this to the is, bit. This isn't a bit. This is celebrating a real person's <laughs> life. This isn't like I've made like a long list for comedy. Like this is his work. This is just some of his work, yeah, to be yeah. fair. Uh, Vulture, well-known one, yeah. wings and everything. And second to last, because the last one being the big one, but he also co-created Wolverine. So obviously that's one of the biggest, like biggest constantly used um like looks that i think was always changed 
but always reference the original. Are we talking Wolverine in the yellow X-Men suit as well? Yeah, so Kirk created... Fucking me. hell, because that, that to me, that is almost my first experience with anything superhero related because of the cartoon from the 90s. Yep, yep. That, that, that you know, the amazing X-Men cartoon from the 90s, you always see short Wolverine mm. in his yellow costume with the big sideburns and the big hair. And that's that was my first experience of anything comic book related, and that was John Romita. Well, what's interesting so as well, cool. that first comic, so he was introduced in the Hulk as yeah. a bad guy originally. So this is well before he was right. even a mutant or anything. Okay. He was later retconned into a mutant when they were making the new X-Men. But in his original one, the you know the big bits on the side, like covering his eyes that yeah. were sticking out like ears? I think I'm almost certain they were blue in the original one. Right. So that look looks a bit, kind of wonky but then at some point they change those to black which just totally makes the look work a lot better then yeah uh, but he was really wolverine that was back when he was introduced as part man part wolverine like i think that was literally like oh uh, that the was literally his shtick and then later they were like what if he was a mutant like yeah that's that's a lot cooler <laughs> the ball feels better i'm coming out of my hands on that one yeah exactly and then we come to uh, probably the most iconic and the one that if you've seen any john Romita senior articles or any remembrances or anything you've almost certainly seen the famous iconic mary jane watson panel yeah and i i actually took an image of that panel because i wanted to talk about it so about so much and so i mean i think what's so cool about it is that if there's one nickname that we see for spider-man a lot it's tiger and and, and specifically go get him tiger as the catchphrase as well, well yeah. face it tiger he says, face it, Tiger, okay, yeah, yeah. you just hit the jackpot. Yeah, go they, get him, Tiger, I think, came in in yeah. reference to that. But in that panel, she's saying, face it, Tiger, you just hit the jackpot. And she's there, and it's the red hair. And again, it's... So this So this is from... For reference for anybody who doesn't know about this, if you're a big so, so, uh, Spider-Man fan, you probably will, from Amazing Spider-Man 42. And so at this point, John Romita was still very much trying to mimic Didco in the way he was drawing things but that face like he had such a way with female faces and the way that he drew mary jane in that panel is so iconic that i have a piece of art up on my wall i would argue mm. is in reference to that style um you know that that classic comic comic book feminine face with the really diminutive nose and the eyes that kind of sit a little bit higher on the head that is where that comes from. Mm. That one panel of Mary Jane. It's well, so iconic. Potentially, it could be that, or it could be that uh, Ramita, apparently, that style, specifically with uh, human faces, mm. which you have to specify with like superhero comics. Yeah, absolutely. The human faces, that style, he apparently carried over from his work on romance comics beforehand. Oh, so, that makes sense. And what was interesting, when you think about it, the romance comics were, had to be very facial expression heavy mm. it was very dramatic very like but you can't leave i love you well and they're dramas <gasps> yeah exactly they're literally dramas exactly but so translated that to comic they needed quite expressive faces and then he i think that was something that was missing from comics before he got there yeah. so he brought that in to his influence and as you mentioned before he started on spider-man uh apprehensive about following steve ditko so yeah. he basically copied his style when he first started and you have the quote from Stan Lee, was it, that he told Ramita? Yeah, so he'd been doing it for a while. He'd been on it for a long time. And there came a point where Stan Lee just came into him and said, stop 
pretending just be yourself basically they had a conversation and he just said yeah stop stop trying Mm. stop trying just do what you do and i think the key thing here is that there are two different ways that a comic book artist back then would get ink onto the page so you would use a pen or you would use a brush steve didco was very much a pen artist when he did his inks he used a pen do you know what i mean when i say doing your inks I well, I assume that means filling in the after you've penciled, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So you do a pencil sketch, mm. and then you so you've got this really rough pencil sketch, and then you ink over it. Didco used a pen. John Romita just liked to use a brush, right? And because the pen had been Didco's style, he persevered with a pen, and then Stanley just said, "No, just do what you do," and so he started using the brush. So that happened on Amazing Spider-Man one hundred eight. That is mm. the point at which you, if you, if you want to actually go and look at this, have a look at a pre-108 Remeters drawn Spider-Man and a post-108 Remeters drawn Spider-Man. And I defy you not to see the difference. It's mm. incredible. Like the, the, the difference in that, in the quality of that artwork when he started using the brush as basically as much as he wanted, because he would always use a brush at points, but he was trying to use a pen as much as he could. And then he just got his brushes out and just started using his brushes all over the place. And there's something about the level of contrast that he gets in those panels. I was showing them to you earlier, mm-hmm. wasn't I? I was, I was going to, um, I was going to get you to say what you said off air about the specifically color blacks and how we use those. Yeah. So because he was applying the black with a brush, not a pen, you're laying down a much heavier layer of it, basically. And so he's using all this really heavy black in the drawing and then you know the way that he's getting the texture on the clothing is using a lot of heavy black hash marks and again because you're using a brush the the line weights are slightly inconsistent because the brush moves and flows on the page and so he just has this stunning style with all this incredible contrast and it i literally i was looking at i was looking at it when i was doing the research and i was like fuck these panels are so good i would have them on my wall Mm, yeah and like i said before they are literally blown up to big wall pieces uh that you see a lot being sold in like even like art galleries have done like yeah absolutely like official cover art art pieces well what i'm realizing now is that 19 where i see a lot of big spider-man pieces like paint on canvas in art galleries and now i'm starting to recognize that actually they are all copies of john romita seniors work in the 1960s Mm. the way that they build that contrast i mean a really a really good indication is that you have the the webbing under the armpit that's a that that that's really really um specific to that era and quite distinctive for that era isn't it yeah i think that specifically was a ditko addition to the character Yeah, yeah but he definitely obviously continued it and incorporated it in his work and ditko ditko's work was great like Ditko's work was really interesting. And I think it's fascinating that John Romita felt, I mean, I watched some interviews with him and he really felt in his shadow. Mm. And it's incredible because they both had this amazing take on the Spider-Man art. They both, like both of their runs, knock it out of the park. Mm. They're phenomenal. But there's something about the quality of the contrast in Romita's work that I just think steps it apart from so much other comic book art specifically modern comic book art yeah I, well when we said before about it being becoming the house style yeah the re i was careful to say for decades after and not for just the rest of so yeah. i've seen a lot of articles that have said like the house style they're still used today and i think that i would argue that a bit because i think it's at some point 
it's been built upon again. Yeah, I completely that's agree. Further with away you. from the original. I don't think what we're seeing now it's it's all reminiscent of because there's certain stylistic changes he made to the character that are never going to go away now, aren't there? Um, but in terms of the actual quality of his illustration, I don't necessarily think that people are hearkening back to it as much. Mm. And to be honest with you, I think it would be difficult to because the way in which these things are drawn now is just different there's new technology mm. i th- people are drawing these on cintiqs mm. I, th- I imagine i imagine if mm. you're if you're an art do you know what a cintiq is no idea so it's a tablet ah, with right. a touch screen on it mm. and a cintiq is a professional drawing tablet right i imagine most people are drawing this in photoshop on a cintiq probably yeah i imagine that's how they're doing it um, and so it's naturally going to look different. And there is a quality to these ink on paper illustrations that's just so gorgeous. Mm. And in terms of influence, even if the modern style is further away from from what he influences the house style, yeah, I think the influence really comes from the fact that he created a house style. Yeah. And that thinking made Marvel and probably even DC to an extent go okay, let's have all our biggest titles look like the most Mm. successful one. And I think that mindset has continued, even if the art has now got further away from the original stuff. Yeah, I suppose it's it's a matter of ethos, isn't it? And again, I think when we were prepping for this episode, you were like, oh, there's this thing that we're going to have to talk about called house style. Um, And I think you really correctly identified that it articulates something we've both been trying to arrive at when we've been Mm. talking about the art in Marvel and DC. Yeah which is that they have this like defined house style. <laughs> like yeah. They look a certain way, don't they? There's a thing I've noticed across a lot of visual mediums. So mm. when you go like television, film, like cartoons, a lot of stuff that we've got to a point now, I think, where house style becomes what looks the best, but within these kind of safe, narrow lanes. Yeah. So it's safe uh, and beautiful to the extent of if you compare it to if we didn't have abundance of this style of art. Yeah. And now, for me personally, and I think you're similar as well, what I consider really great comic book art, and we've had this, we will have this conversation on the Spider-Man episode and and Yeah, going we're going to have well. to get into it there, aren't we? Yeah. But talking about the house style and everything, I think we both draw now more towards art that looks unique and beautiful. Yeah. Where, or just great, whereas opposed to, again, the house styles of both Marvel and DC, which have their own, you can see the differences in them, but they have their own each house styles. But if some, they a lot of stuff stays within these safe lanes. Yeah. Like, we need it to kind of look like this. And I think that's, oh, again, that's just because there's now an abundance of great art within this style. It makes people crave different styles. What I think is interesting, and we've, we've talked about this, and I, I imagine we're definitely going to end up talking about it when we talk about the Amazing Spider-Man, the modern one. Yes. Is that a lot of the time you weren't even really noticing the art unless it was really bad. Like, you just weren't looking at it, weren't you? And I imagine that that is not uncommon among comic book artists. Not not comic book artists, comic book consumers. Yeah. Oh, for sure, yeah. It's And you see a lot more, like, interesting styles in the third parties. Yeah, which 100%. does To a certain extent, it becomes their selling point, but it also can work against them when people look at that stuff and say... Oh, but I've, they don't realize they've been conditioned to think, oh, but this stuff by Marvel and DC, that's the proper stuff because it yeah. looks like what I know and what yeah. I recognize. We'll get into it more in the Spider Man, uh, definitely the beginning of the next of the Spider Man. Well, we're going to have issue, to, yes. aren't we? Um, one little interesting tidbit that I heard, uh, which I thought was good, was apparently Ramita, before he took over Spider Man, he was on Daredevil. So he took yeah. over that at that point. And again, this was he was playing it safe. He 
was doing what he thought was expected. So he hadn't quite done anything revolutionary or iconic yet. Yeah. But what Stanley did was he apparently he had the idea to put Romita onto Spider-Man, like the main title. So around that time when Romita was doing Daredevil, Stanley basically made it so a Spider-Man appeared in Daredevil for that time. So he gave him a bit of a taster of like his drawing Spider-Man, and then later was like when he offered him the Spider-Man title, and again, apparently Romita was apprehensive at the time, he was like, well, you've done him already. You did him in the Daredevil comic. <laughs> so Stanley being a bit of old puppet, puppet master kind of thing. Uh, one thing I think is interesting when talking about Romita now, especially in terms of Marvel, is he comes across to me now as almost like a, him and probably a bunch of others as well, a kind of fourth Beatle placing within the major three of Marvel. <laughs> so the major three of Marvel, for anyone who does know, obviously everyone knows Stan Lee. Yeah. Uh, but then you saw also got Jack Kirby and Steve yeah. Ditko. Yeah. So those are the ones who are remembered for like creating Marvel, like for what it is, for what it was for a long time. But John Romita was there at the time, wasn't mm. he? Well, this is what I mean is there's these people who might be less known compared to them. Yeah. And it's only when we get these kind of celebration of work and life things, I think there's going to be a couple of others who, as we're unfortunately going to talk about within the coming years, yeah. But I think there's going to be a lot more. Where we go, oh, this one, this this guy was also this man or this woman was also really uh, influential. Mm. So uh, only now that we've kind of not exhausted the talk, but like there's a lot of uh, celebration of Stanley, Ditko, and Kirby, yeah. But I think we're going to now find out, or well, soon we're going to find out these other ones who played such a large role as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, even down to... He drew the death of Gwen Stacy. Mm. John Romita drew the initial death of Gwen Stacy. That's huge. That's a huge moment in Spider-Man lore. Yep, yep. It, it gave, it, you know, Gwen Stacy was always supposed to be Spider-Man's love interest. Mary Jane was kind of a secondary female character, and he drew the death of Gwen Stacy. And we, we think about now that, you know, we're in the Miles Morales stuff and we've got Spider-Gwen mm. and we're seeing these reimaginings of different, you know, versions of Gwen Stacy. He was, he drew that iconic moment in Spider-Man mm. lore. That's huge. That, you, I can't, you know, if you're a Spider-Man fan, that's a massive iconic moment for the character and yep. for the franchise and the series. He was right there for it. I think right there he drew it what's also a huge credit to his work as well and whoever was writing at the time as well is they managed to introduce a replacement love interest mm. that was well received as well because gwen stacy was a kind of fan favorite at the time yeah no one wanted to see her die like mm. that was uh like taken as as it should have been it was a you know depressing sad moment so for them to then introduce a new love interest and for her to be as well received i think is huge because again like modern day film and television when characters especially in television when characters are replaced killed off and they're replaced there's normally like a fan backlash to yeah. them where they like feel a connection to the yeah, original one absolutely so the fact that mary jane became the staple like a lot of people don't even know about gwen stacy well like until until i started being a bit more until i started doing this i didn't know who gwen stacy was because in the depictions of Spider-Man that I grew up with, the, the Tobey Maguire films, it was MJ. And uh, even more especially, I think, the animated one from, yeah. the, from the late 90s, early noise. That was it, MJ, wasn't it? That was the depiction going forward. And it's, I mean, that's a whole other conversation itself, like how the cartoons and now the movies now kind of set what the 
expectation of new fans is yeah absolutely yeah absolutely luckily gwen stacy's getting a good showing in the new spider-verse films oh man she's so cool she's so cool Mm. and specifically it's the spider gwen character which is really interesting um and also to a far lesser known extent uh gwen pool do you know gwen pool (laughs) is Gwenpool is a Deadpool. It's like a Gwen Stacy variant of Deadpool. Oh shit, but, that's interesting. Where's that from then? They just mark. They just introduced her a couple of years ago, I think. Is she getting her own runs then? Yeah, she got her own runs. Um, and her powers are quite interesting. So they, she, she says very little with Deadpool apart from the look and the name. Yeah, but her powers are she knows she's a comic book character. So oh, all her powers, is, it's very meta. Jesus Christ! Like even more so than Deadpool, because Deadpool just references she her like her stories are like solved with meta, you know, uh, fourth wall breaking. I'm gonna be honest with you here. I think that the fourth wall break as a concept in modern fiction is so hacky at this point. It has been played out to death. Well, to be fair, some characters have been doing it for a lot longer. So, like, it became staples of characters before it became it's overused. super hacky. It turns me off so quickly. And I know you're a huge Deadpool fan. Yeah, but that's, that is... that's not my favourite thing about him. Like, no, that's... no, no, no. Yeah, absolutely. I understand that that's not, like, your primary thing that you're into with Deadpool. But I just, I just see it all the time in, like, modern cartoons and comics and stuff. Where they, like... They almost use the fact that a character can break the fourth wall as a character element, and I just mm. don't find it that interesting. Yeah, no, I, I get that. So with with Deadpool, it was always like a cheeky reference. What I especially loved about the Deadpool character was the way they incorporated it. Is his fourth wall breaking? Is it is seen and heard and um, received by the characters around him? And they attribute it to his insanity. Yeah, yeah, yeah So absolutely. he is an insane character. So that's, I always like that element of, is it actually fourth wall breaking? Or even though the information is correct, like he'll reference Stanley or whatever, is, he, is that just him being insane and in the Marvel universe? I absolutely used that as a trope for a D&D character that I played once. <laughs> Are you saying you used a hacky? <laughs> yeah, no, super hacky, man. Yeah, really hacky, really cheap, but a lot of fun. Mm. Um, so I had a bard. And so he was aware that, well, he wasn't, it was never made explicit, but he was always referencing stuff that was happening on Earth. But the, the way that we used it and the reason it was really fun is because the way a bard casts spells in D&D 5th edition mm. is they play their instrument. And so we allowed that my bard had an electric loop with a crude amplifier that he'd built. And I would slip my DM a slip of paper telling him what song my bard was playing while we were in battle and so it basically meant that i got to choose the battle music hmm. and so we would go into combat and i'd be like the trooper by iron maiden right you know what i mean and yeah, so yeah, it was yeah. it was a fun thing but yeah super hacky super cheap do you know who the original marvel character to consistently break the fourth wall was i know i know one of the earliest uses in cinema do you know who the original Mar- what, what, what the original Marvel character in comics to consistently break the fourth no. wall? She-Hulk. Oh fuck, really? Yeah, That's a lot of people like I didn't know that until I saw like uh, I saw that as like a interesting fact about Marvel because I always thought it was Deadpool, obviously. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, it was She-Hulk. She um just incorporate it that's i'm super fascinated by she-hulk we really need to get into it about she-hulk one day we'll definitely do a she-hulk i mean we've 
the She-Hulk season two will probably be on Disney Plus at some point, so we'll do it for then. Don't let the audience know that we are just sluts for SEO tie-in. Right. You, the, <laughs> if it wasn't for the Miles Morales episode being so successful in downloads, <laughs> like we can't hide it. Like, yeah, no, by far it is like our most downloaded, our most popular content we've made, isn't it? Put it this way. If you're listening to this episode, you've almost certainly statistically listened to the Miles Morales <laughs> episode. So it's just how it works. Um. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I know one. Of, I know one of the earliest uses in cinema is yep. the post-credit scene on Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yeah. <laughs> Which was also later um, referenced by Deadpool. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Who's like? By the way, we've got Cable in the second one. <laughs> so I've got a couple of iconic uh, panels of John Romita. If you that... don't show me the Spider-Man suit in the fucking bin, all of your credibility is going to be gone. Well, yeah, that was the first one, obviously. Yay. Actually, no, no, sorry, the Mary Jane one was going to be the first one. But well, the, we've the... talked about that. Panel, yeah, exactly. Though, haven't we? Uh, the one in the bin is it's really interesting because it's one I've seen a lot. Well, it's in but, Spider-Man too. Well, exactly. But here's the thing. It's, I've seen it a lot, but now I'm looking at the original drawn one. Mm. I'm starting to question myself like, have I seen this a lot? Or have I seen others that I just then assumed in my head, oh, that's that was the original have comic panel. Have you just seen panels that reference it? Because I bet there's a ton of them. Panels and, as I say, animated um, stills in the cartoons. The movie did it exactly. Um, it's it, I, it's a bit of a Mandela effect thing where I'm like, yeah. I've seen it in so many different versions without realizing, because when I originally saw them, I didn't know like the comics or Ramita or even Stan Lee. Like, Do I you want to hear kid. something funny? Yeah. You know the Mandela effect? Is itself a Mandela effect? Well, no. A lot of people now say it's the Mandela effect and they don't uh, know that it's about Stephen Mandela. And so with Man- Stephen Mandela? Nelson Mandela, <laughs> Jesus Christ, Have Jamie. Have you Mandela affected yourself <laughs> into getting... Into yeah, Stephen Mandela, Nelson's Mandela, Nelson Mandela's cousin, the one yeah. who was in a ska band. Old Steve Mandela. Yeah, old Steve. Yeah. <laughs> for, 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 for our younger and more impressionable listeners... It's not Stephen. <laughs> there's no Steve Mandela, I made a mistake. <laughs> At the best possible time. <laughs> no, is, that, is that ironic? Is that the definition of irony? Isn't that... Yeah, no... Alanis Morissette has made it so that I can't correctly identify irony anymore. Yeah, she butchered irony. <laughs> which is not ironic. <laughs> no, that was indeed irony, yeah. Right. So, looking at the original panel, I didn't realise, now looking at it properly, the use of lines into for specific effects. Mm. So, what's interesting is that a lot of his earlier work, which I'm seeing here, there was a common thing in comics where the, the blue sky wouldn't be blue. Yes. And I think it's blue had some issues. It wasn't as good to like do uh, as like a, a Didn't print larger very color. Well. Yeah, larger color. So my specific instance with this was I went back and read um the Batman famous one, Death in Death in the Family. Yeah, yeah. So one where if you don't know, Robin gets beaten to death with a crowbar by the Joker. Yeah. Turns out happens in I can't remember now, like a Middle Eastern country. Uh, Does which, it not happen in Gotham? I know, right? It's so Batman <laughs> He's on holiday. Batman imagine, ch- chases the Joker. Going on holiday and then getting battered to death by the Joker. Well, Does he, your travel insurance cover it? You might feel bad now because he was actually chasing the Joker who had a nuke. So uh, he has like, I have to go to the Middle East and I have to follow Joker because he got a nuclear bomb on him. <sighs> There's a yeah. nuke in the Middle East. Yeah, the Joker took there. That's super hacky. Well, that's that's <laughs> superhero shenanigans. Yeah, I suppose time. it is. It's superhero shenanigans, isn't it? But then he went on to, I said, mercilessly beat to death Robin. Yeah. Um, but in reading that, so they're in the desert at points. Yeah. 
and they're in the desert and it's so there was a blue sky in this one so they had some blues but they couldn't get like night and day so i'm looking at this panel with the yellow of the sand and a blue sky and Mm. then at some point batman goes well it's nearly midnight so uh so we better hurry up and i'm like it's meant to be night then like daylight they they just couldn't do dark colors Mm. across that big so so that's why the contrast in a lot of those it's normally like yellow sky background yeah so that's what i'm seeing a lot in some of earlier ramita senior's earlier stuff the yellow sky background and it's not like that's the sky it's just they use that color as a background to draw focus and contrast to the especially spider-man the red and blue of his uh costume but in this panel specifically i think they kind of upped like their game and what he did rather than using a a blanket like fill color for the dark sky he uses lines to it to get across the cloud the dark cloud hangover because it's that raining dark scene and he's like you know walking off and it's all sad that use of line that use of line work like that though is just Ramita senior all over exactly super idiomatic thing Mm. so i think uh, they probably this is pure speculation they couldn't do gray clouds because it would just look like gray sky but with the line work that gets across that it's cloud isn't it a sick panel yeah it's great uh, it's also got the lines all and at the same panel so he's got crisscrossing lines for the cloud but then he's got straight down lines for the rain so it, it contrasts with that as well and i think at the time this was revolutionary i think this was mm. like no one had done it that way until he did it yeah i mean again i, I read issue 108 and 109 of the amazing mm. spider-man run and every couple pages I was taking photographs of panels to show you. Mm. And his use of colour was super interesting. Also, Peter Parker, when walking away, wearing a bright yellow jacket. Uh, I think guess for the sixties that was maybe normal, I guess. I don't know I don't know fashion. So I don't know if that was normal for the time. Like a bright yellow jacket with with jeans, I suppose. I, I assume. I mean, again, I think they were just going for big iconic colors. Yeah, that's like, they fair. were just going for big splashes of color. Because I don't. I mean, when was the yellow rain mac fashionable? Uh, I must have been the sixties, mustn't it? You'd assume. Yeah, you'd think so. Yeah, just mm. the, thinking of the Beatles on the help cover with oh. their rain. No, their rain macs were blue, weren't they? On the help cover. I mean, you're you're asking other people when you are the most likely to know. Yeah, that's right in yeah. my wheelhouse, isn't it? Also, incidentally, Spider-Man leaving the costume just half out of a can. No. Great for the look, but like, come on, mate. Are you trying to hide it at all? Like, we have some, <laughs> some bin man's right there. It's like, is that your Spider-Man costume that you just left, like, hanging out of the bin? What color did I say the Max were? Yellow. Oh, blue in the help thing. Nailed it. They're blue. I'd be, I'd be more shocked if you didn't. Like, Yeah, at this point, it's not I'm, impressive. I'm keeping it? the gold star because this is like the this is the bare minimum for you at this point. For reference for the audience, I'm a huge Beatles fan. And you only get gold stars when you know stuff that's out of your wheelhouse. Yeah, this is it. Because you, was it last week, you correctly remembered Bane had broken Batman's back? Yeah. That was a gold star. But you didn't put it on... Not on the thumbnail, but I put the noise in the episode. You did. I got a Mario coin noise, yes. which I was very appreciative of. And lo- surprisingly, it took very little work on my part. So it might, <laughs> it might be a running theme going forward. Well, I get gold stars. But that noise. Yeah, that noise happens. <laughs> and then you collect them at the end of the year. Then we do the end of year roundup. You can count how many gold stars you got in the year and then have that as a benchmark for next year. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> One uh, great iconic look that I'm mm. looking at now is Craven the Hunter. Mm. So his is one that I, is one of the few that I think stylistically, or at least in concept, has lasted. Yeah, he's always had this giant lion mane vest thing yeah. with the mane kind of around his head. 
So for a lot of characters, like I said about Rhino earlier, you know, he's changed to make him more imposing looking. Yeah. Raven, even though stylistically has changed, I think that concept remaining is strong credit to like how good he made him look originally in the 60s. Um, why he got the lion mane thing? Like, it's just like, hey, he's a hunter. He hunts people and now he's hunting Spider-Man. It's so interesting as well, because you talk about that. You talk about the longevity of these designs. But now thinking back, on the three sets of movie adaptations that we've had of Spider-Man in the you know in our lifetimes, the most recent one, the MCU version of Spider-Man, Tom Holland's Spider-Man, mm-hmm. his original Spider-Man suit. So not the not the mech suit that he gets after Tony Stark dies, right? But his first suit, his first one in Civil War, super John Romita, yeah, like high contrast on the red and the blue, really simple. It's ve- really harkens back to the 1960s one, as far as I'm concerned. I would say as well, I technically think the Andrew Garfield one as well, because that was quite a contrasting red and blue as well. Yeah. And I think they changed that because they wanted to differ from the previous Tobey Maguire one, which was kind of muted tones. It was a bit more modern looking, wasn't it? Yeah, not as bright. Still could see the blue and the red. I think modern Spider-Man, that blue has become more of a rich navy, hasn't it? Yeah, I'd say. Well, I think they've changed it up again. They change up from like periodically time, yeah. every time they reinvent the character, but they keep coming back to this version, don't they? Yeah, uh, Navy is the default for sure. But you'll you'll read the problem I'm having with like modern comics and especially the bigger ones is the big three, which to me are Batman, Superman, and Spider Man. Yeah, they'll constantly be like five issue mini runs, yeah. which are just completely different uh, writers and artists. And to me, at that point, I'm like, I'm taking it. I'm trying to take in the main runs. So I'm like, I don't have time. I genuinely don't have time to read these mini runs. Yeah. But in those, you see some interesting art differences as well. So those, sometimes they're different. Sometimes they're not. And at least the different ones definitely appeal more. Because you may think, oh, maybe they're doing something a little bit different in this one. But Spider-Man, yeah, he changed up a little bit. But he always comes back to the navy blue, I'd say. The other thing that I was really impressed by, and I pulled up just one panel to show you is the visual storytelling that john romita was able to get and i think you kind of hit on his posing and his anatomy so what they specifically hit the chain a big change he made was he made spider-man more muscular which i think definitely worked with the spider-man look of a superhero whereas ditko kept him quite lean and not necessarily weedy but like definitely less muscular i think ditko was going on that like he is a 15 year old high school student whereas spider-man in this run was meant to be a college kid yeah they they had aged him up a bit and they'd given him a more um interest well they gave him a more interesting silhouette a more muscular Mm. silhouette but in terms of the way he posed spider-man if you look at this panel and this is a panel from uh amazing spider-man 108 Mm -hmm. so the one that i was really into and you look at the visual storytelling here. It's a panel of um, Doctor Strange yep. and Doctor Strange in flight and Spider-Man web-slinging, I suppose. And just look at that visual storytelling. You've got this really lithe, agile, young Spider-Man almost struggling to keep up with this very open, imposing Doctor Strange. Mm. And you think about their two characters... And the way that these two poses speak to those characters, I just think it's an excellent piece of visual storytelling. And that was the sense that I got from his art, is that it always served the story. 
you know? Yeah, he was definitely better at depict telling story through art. Yeah, like, and was... what more can you want from comic book art? 100%. It's it's the main thing, for sure. Um, I don't know if this was specifically him or not, but why, or if this was something before him, but why I also notice is his use of the color white for motion. Mm. I generally don't know if this was used before him, but it does seem to be used a lot more. I didn't notice it. That's really interesting. It's yeah. something I didn't notice. There's one particular panel where he's jumping down on two thugs and mm. he's kicking one while punching the other. <laughs> and the use of the white, it shows the kick has already happened, but the, the because it's like a trail of white. Yeah. But the punch hasn't happened yet, but it has like a buildup of the white to like show that he's powering up this punch. Yeah. And again, I don't want to make outlandish claims like he invented it or anything, but it's definitely a lot more prominent in his work. Mm -hmm. And what in that panel you just showed me with him and Strange, you see in Strange, the white trailing is like straight flat, whereas with Spider-Man, it's curved. Uh, So it shows the curvature of his swinging, whereas whereas Strange is flying in a straight line. Do you know, I didn't notice it. You're so right. Mm. And again, I don't know if he invented it, but it definitely is. Look, he he used it a lot better, I think, in his work. Yeah. So to deviate a bit from Spider-Man, and he is most famous for the work he did on Spider-Man, I wanted to talk about a comic that he did pre-Marvel called... It is called... It was the work he did for um, uh, Timely Comics, which was... I'm confident it's Atlas Comics. Ah, right. Okay. So it's... He did some work for Timely, but the one you're referencing is Atlas Comics. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah, so it's something he did for Atlas Comics called Battle Action. Also, initially, Atlas Comics also became Marvel Comics. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah, it yeah. literally might have gone Timely, Atlas, Marvel. Yeah. So, so Atlas Comics, uh, pre-Marvel... Um, there was a war comic called Battle Action. He didn't draw a lot of it, but he drew issue 20. And I think if if you're interested in his artwork and you're interested in the evolution of his artwork, it's really interesting to go back to because it's very grounded and really cool. Um, so there's a particular panel. It's from issue 20 of Battle Action Comics. It is a war comic. And I think it's really telling that he was a veteran. He served in the American army. He was in North Korea. And he drew just this stunning panel of a soldier in silhouette for that, for this comic book. And his work there, it's a bit more rudimentary than his work in the Marvel era. And it makes sense because he'd had time to grow as an artist. And it inherently had to be a bit more grounded because it was a very straight up and down war comic. Hmm. But I think it's worth a mention because his, you can really see the early kind of inception of his style so if you look at the heavy shading in the, on the inks mm. and the contrast to the black and the the high the black and the high contrast colors yeah i mean and considering that is on really inky paper we're talking this is from what post career so 1950s yeah yeah it's looking at captain america cover where uh, incidentally captain america commie smasher so, <laughs> oh, it, of its hell. time but that was from uh, 1954 as well, so definitely he was he was dipping in and out of comics at that time. Mm. Yeah, I forget that Captain America's pre-Marvel. Yeah, like, it, that one is of an the few old character, isn't it? Yeah, it's why they 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 brought him back for the Avengers, obviously, with the whole frozen in time angle. Yeah. But what's also interesting is he was also doing stuff before the Avengers, so he was doing stuff in like the late 60s, like 60s and 70s, and then. Around that time, they then bought the Avengers. They were like, we want the Captain America from the war. So we're going to say the original one got frozen. 
And it was a different uh, Captain America who was running around doing Captain America stuff. Because I, I mean, when I think of Captain America's, what's his name? Steve? Steve Rogers. No, Steve Nelson, isn't it? <laughs> Steve Mandela. <laughs> Steve Mandela, for fuck's always, sake. Always Steve. For fuck's sake. Do you know a Steve? <laughs> I mean, there's one sat on your lap. There is, there is. Uh, our mate, Stephen, he likes to hang around sometimes. Yeah, he just comes and sits with us while we do the podcast. Yeah. We've already got two chairs. Yes, exactly. He doesn't speak, obviously. <laughs> we don't let him. No. Um, I can't believe I got Nelson Mandela's name wrong twice. The worst bit is... Did you mean to say Steve Nelson or was that... No, I meant to say okay, Steve Mandela. Okay. Right. I, it was, I was... <laughs> so that's a third layer yeah, of Mandela yeah. effect. I, I was going for a callback to Steve Mandela for earlier. We've now mentioned earlier. it so much that the episode description has to include that we discussed the Mandela effect. <laughs> And people are going to be like, I thought they were talking about John Romita Sr. It's like, yeah, and the Mandela effect. But no, when I think of Captain America, mm. I think of World War II, him being frozen. Yeah. I forget that that isn't part of his initial... Not the frozen part, no. Was he even? Was there even anything medically done to him to make him a super soldier originally? Or was it just that he was our badass American GI? So he... I think I'm right in if I'm wrong. This is please a right deep in to dive, me. isn't it? I'm almost certain that he went through the uh, super soldier program. Yeah. So he went through all that. But the difference was it didn't actually give him powers. It just made him the peak human. Right. So whatever the strongest, fastest, most athletic yeah. human he, he was turned into from like a... Uh, literally like a weedy, thin, short guy, yeah. and became that. It was only then in later, might have actually been MCU, or, or if not that, like, soon before, but it was only later they were like, oh, no, he is also, like, slightly super strong, slightly, you know, yeah. like, like it's it's going a bit past, like, Olympic level to superpowers. Um, they really went a full steam with that in mcu when he held the helicopter to the to the thing yes and it's like muscle it's like biceps absolutely bold like chris chris uh evans biceps absolutely bulging and it was like did you need to hold it in that pose <laughs> like yeah <laughs> like like that guy who just finds any reason to flex like yeah. oh, let me just grab that helicopter <laughs> instantly when we talk about muscular spider-man as well what i thought was interesting was he made him more muscular and you said oh he's at college so um, what I thought was superheroes are often depicted as muscular, even though mm. they have super strength. Yeah, I know. They don't need it. <laughs> well, Spider-Man, I think, is that level because he's proportionate strength of a spider. So it is technically super strength, but it's not like Superman super strength where yeah. he lifts like a plane out of the air. But Spider-Man's at that level where with the kind of stuff he does, he could actually be getting reps in. Yeah. So if he like lifts like a helicopter, so it's not quite like a plane or a cruise ship or something, but it's like big you know, still super powered, but not Superman level. He's lifting a lot of those up or like rub, like rubble from a falling building or stuff like that. He's lifting those up and he's just ac accidentally getting gains in. Yeah, so yeah. then by the time he gets to college, it's like, oh, Pete, you're really like put on some mass there. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I don't know how. It's like, do you go to the gym? It's like, no, not at all. Oh, no, I do. Yeah, I do go yeah, to the gym. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah, my deadlift's 150K, I promise. Yeah. <laughs> like, can you he's show? picking buildings up. And then, can you show us? He's like trying to pretend like it struggles. Like, <laughs> well because i think they did a really great job of the depiction of super strength in the incredibles where mm. mr incredible was out of shape but obviously still dead fucking strong yeah if it's a superpower then it should be like it should work no matter how you look yeah absolutely which is actually on uh previous uh a previous episode 
might have been might have been last week. It depends when this one comes out. But uh, when we did the Flash, one thing that I liked about it, which for me was someone who used to superheroes, was a different thing. Was Superman being weak and thin? Yeah. And non. Is there a word for non-muscular? Because I keep like dancing around it, like I don't have emaciated. the word. Emaciated. Emaciated. He was emaciated. Yes, sure. So the fact that he was still Superman strength and everything yeah. because of the sunlight, but because he hadn't been lifting stuff, he was emaciated. Um, for comic book fans, you go, bloody hell, I've never seen Superman like that. I mean, he was almost a little bit atrophied in that panel, wasn't he? Like, yeah. he looked poorly. He had been locked up, not able to move. But then as soon as he gets a bit of sun on him, he doesn't then expand. Well, he, <laughs> he doesn't then expand. He is just, he doesn't blow up like a like yeah. a SpongeBob thing where he blows his thumb and like <laughs> the muscles go. But he just, he's just super, super strong then. Yeah. So, so it makes sense. Uh, I see if there's, there's a couple of other like iconic ones, uh, panels. I mean, lots obviously like marriage to Mary Jane and things like that, which I think are quite well known. Obviously the um, costume in the bin, which why would you just leave it there like that? uh the rhino well, it, show, it shows the distress he was in he was so distressed he couldn't even get it all the way in the bin which mm. is the excuse i've been using for years ryan and nobody believes me what why all your all your stuff is strewn around the room yeah fucking a people tell me it's like adhd or something yeah but you're not quite like giving up the superhero mantle you're just like throwing your jacket on the floor i don't know what an hd is but apparently i've got eight of them well well, it's, ha, 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 ha. I was going to say, they're, high, ha, 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 ha. they're in high definition, at least. <laughs> so I, I think from the layments, we've covered, I think, as much as we can not being artists ourselves. Yeah, I mean, I, do you know what? I think the key thing to get across here is the extent to which some of these iconic panels have influenced the way that these characters are being drawn, even to now. Even even if they're not directly cribbing off his style, you are seeing his influence everywhere, aren't you? And yeah. that's really powerful. And I think, you know, in terms of a creative life, don't think you can ask for much more than that as a creative. Uh, again, the, the, the few people that get talked about more, at least before his passing, were, again, Stanley, um, especially artists, Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko. So the fact that, Again, it's an interesting level where you're, he might be elevated when people are now taking a retrospective look. I mean, mm. he, was ce- he was celebrated in his time. He was inducted into the Eisner Hall of Fame yes. for, for his comic book work. So it's not like he didn't get any, any no, no, appreciation. No, yeah, nobody was looking at his work going, well, that's all garbage. No. But I think what's interesting is that people, I think, are going to be elevated to that level in retrospect. It's always posthumous, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's, that's the arts in general, isn't yeah. it? But at least we, he, I mean, he had a long life and he did what he, apparently he did what he loved for most of it and was celebrated for it. So how, yeah. mu- how much more can you ask for that? Yeah, I think so. I think, that's yeah. a, I think that's a wrap on that one, isn't it? Well, in which case, thank you for listening this week. Uh, this is my attempt at the outro with nothing ahead of me. So let's see how it goes. No, never was a bigger improviser. I'm no. Just, just, I yes, mean, ending. Yeah, you're just... You just <laughs> I just yes and and then no one responds. So I go, Oh, it's just me now, is it? Um but yes, thank you for listening. We appreciate your listens and uh your ongoing support. Uh if you would like to write in and either correct us on anything we've said or just tell us you hate us, um then please do so at comicliter at gmail.com. Well done. Uh if you would like to leave a review, then there are in in app in podcast app ways you can leave reviews 
And if uh, you leave a five-star review, we can have a look through and see and put one and read out on the air. Um, especially if you want to get any secret messages to us that we have to read out. Like, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and specifically, the best ones for leaving reviews, I believe, would be the uh, Apple podcasts, uh, the Google podcasts, the Spotify uh, who says the Spotify? The Spotify. The Spotify. It's like when my nana asked about using the Facebook. Um, <laughs> Aww. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it, w- it was originally called the Facebook. Yeah, yeah. You've seen Social Network as well. <laughs> <laughs> and if you would like to view our some of our shorts, they are currently airing on YouTube and TikTok. Yeah. Um, if you want just a brief glimpse and my uh, having a crack at editing. Uh, the Galactus one that came out recently, I was especially proud of because I made a character move from side to side for the first hey. time. Um, and I think that's pretty much it. So I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give my first gold star of the podcast. Wow! And say thank you and good night. Thank you. Good night.